we are in this series called Unstoppable, and the thing that's unstoppable is God's Spirit who's at work because Jesus has risen from the dead. And these people who've been afraid, who have been um, faltering, who've been doubting, have now have this confidence and this boldness that comes through in unbelievable ways, especially in this way um, today that we see. In the midst of challenges, they still seem unstoppable. And this is also the first time in the story where the writer uses the word church. Now, I don't know the word church and what it evokes for you. I know that five years ago when we were meeting in my basement and dreaming about this place that was probably going to be called Restoration, if we would be called Restoration Covenant Church. Like, would we use the word church? Because for some people, church isn't an awesome word. Um, But when we thought more and more about it, and especially what church really is supposed to mean, this word um, that we see from the Greek here that Luke uses is ekklesia. It's this word that means to call out or gather together. And so Luke kind of takes this word that was really meant for a general assembly, like anytime people got together and he says, this is going to be our word. We are called out by Jesus out of this life, and we are called together to live in this new way, in this new life. So one way that this kind of just became super clear to me was last night I'm at this birthday party, and this guy is a friend of mine named Dave, and Dave is, um, Dave lives four hours away from me now, and Dave hasn't lived here for a long, long time, but people came from three and four and five hours. Actually, some people came from Florida. Last night, they were called out of their lives and called together to gather to honor Dave. Dave celebrated his 60th birthday, but when Dave was 45, Dave remembers that when he was eight, his dad died at 53 years old. And he was convinced that he was not going to live past 50. And so for five years, he just sat around, and the story that he told himself was that I'm going to die at 50. I'm not going to see any grandkids. I'm not going to see any, any, my girls grow up, and this is going to be my life. And one day, he stopped, and he said, I don't want to tell that story anymore. Do I believe that God's in charge of my life? And, and it happened about two years before he turned 50, and his life has literally just been a model for me. He's been someone that I've looked up to who would have been a really unhealthy dad, but is a great uncle. And, and again, um, the point of telling you this story is to say a group of people were called out and called together to honor Dave. That's sort of an ecclesia, but church is truly in its most raw and best form a group of people who've been called out by Jesus and called together to honor Jesus. That's the part we got to remember. Like, we're not just called out to be this group or to called out to be this club. We're called out to honor Jesus. So how do we know if we're doing that? Well, this is where we find it. We find it in these stories right here in Acts that say these people have been called out and called together to honor Jesus, to demonstrate the power of God so at work in their life. And you know what? When we see this the most is when we're going through challenges. I mean, it's great to say, oh, I love God. I'm totally, I get together with my church people and my life's perfect. But when we forget to turn on our microphone or more importantly, like when we lose our jobs or when our life is crumbling, then 
How do we respond in the midst of that? How do we say that we still honor God with our life? Well, we find it in this section right here. So I'm just too excited. So let's, let's jump into it. Um, we start this story in Acts 4. Uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you a Bible. It's really, really cool. Here we see the early church um, responding to the Spirit, responding to these challenges in a way where they continue to be unstoppable. And if we look at how they responded, we can apply it not only to our own church, but also to our own lives. So we start the story in Acts 4. Now, we've been in this series of unstoppable. We've seen the, the disciples respond to Jesus. The impossible becomes possible when he rises from the dead. They are, receive this power to be his witnesses in Acts 2 of the spirit of Pentecost, and they start showing and telling the story of Jesus over and over, even in the midst of challenging situations where they are kind of given threats or told not to do it anymore. They continue to respond, to heal people, to meet people where they're at, to continue to tell the story of Jesus. And God continues to, to show up in that way because why wouldn't he want to glorify a group of people who are honoring him? He wouldn't want to stop that. And we see that right here. But they've been threatened and they've been jailed and they've been told don't speak in his name anymore. And it says in Acts 4.23, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Sovereign Lord. I don't know how often you use that phrase. When they were threatened and released and they were told that the most powerful, most important people in their government, in the Jewish government, in the Jewish religious government, were saying, stop using that name. They didn't go, hey, God, I need your help. Not trying to be trite. Sovereign Lord, sovereign, the one who has ultimate rule and ultimate authority. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by your Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They found stories in scripture that applied to their life and they used them in their life. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will decided before should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your Holy Spirit, Holy Servant Jesus. And it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. God was definitely in their midst. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. See, I think that we see in this little section here that if we're going to be a church that says we are called out and called together to honor Jesus, that, that honoring Jesus would be glorifying God, then the way we do that is to trust in God's ultimate sovereignty. 
See, it's one, th- I know it's kind of a big religious phrase, but we see it here, you know, um, that when they prayed in the midst of the threats, they said, Sovereign Lord. They remembered who was in charge, who ultimately rules the world. And sometimes that's really hard when we see things crumble around us or when we see governments or broken systems and we think, I'm one person, what difference can I make? Or this huge thing is going on, how am I going to respond to that? And in the midst of this, Jesus' followers are saying, hey, we know that uh, evil people conspired against Jesus, but we also know that God had foretold this through the prophets. Remember when Jesus rose from the dead and he explained all the way through the scriptures the stories of who the Messiah would be and how he would come and how he would suffer. They didn't like that. Remember when Peter was saying, Jesus, you're the anointed one. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, gives Peter this holy moment. He's like, Peter, this was not revealed to you by man. God revealed this to you. No one had ever said that to Peter. And now I'm going to rename you, Peter. And on this rock, on this foundation that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Of course, right afterwards, he says, no, Jesus, you can't suffer. And he says, get behind me, Satan. So uh, it's also a bad moment. But the point is that in the midst of this, Jesus has told them how he would suffer, how God had foretold that before that, and again, proving this point that God knew God isn't surprised, even in the midst of challenges. And that's also something that we just got to say is really hard to live with. Sometimes that's really, really hard to admit. I'm going to hold this fact that God has all the power and God has all the knowledge and that God is good, and now I'm in a really, really bad situation. And most people say, so is God not good? Or does God not have all the power? Or does God just not know? Because if I have two out of those three, you know, if, if I can take one of those away, then maybe I'll feel better about my situation. But for God to be all those things, and for us to have someone we care about suffer or die or something we have loved and held and tried not to hold as a possession but just hold dearly and it's taken away, then we start to question that. We start to wonder about this idea that maybe it's not good or maybe God's not good or maybe God doesn't have all the power. But it's important to remember in situations like that what has happened in the past in Jeremiah 29, there's this verse that a lot of us love. I I personally like it. It is foundational for us starting this church of, um, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Well, it's really important to remember that those words and those verses and those good blessings are coming in the midst of exile, of 70 years where they are overtaken as a people, 70, like almost a lifetime. And he says, those plans are still good, and I still have you, and I still know you. God can hold the dichotomy. And Isaiah tells us that God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Isaiah 55 As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts 
higher than your thoughts. The, the idea meaning that, that God will understand things that we might never, ever, ever, ever understand. Now, that's not to say that we're supposed to just sit back and go, oh, I don't have to do anything. There must be no responsibility that I need to take. And sometimes people actually diminish God's sovereignty by denying any responsibility. Other people decrease God's sovereignty by telling themselves or telling others or even telling God how they should, this situation should be changed. Like, I must know better than God. And I've done that before, so I'm not accusing you of doing that. But what I appreciate here is that the apostles don't do either of these things. Jesus' followers here, they don't blame God for what's going on, and they don't beg him to take it away. They see the challenge, and they trust in God's sovereignty, and they trust in it so much that they take responsibility. When they pray, now, God, give us strength and boldness to continue to do what we know you've told us to do. When was the last time you prayed a prayer like that? God, I know you've told me to do this. Maybe I don't want to, or maybe I'm afraid, or maybe it's going to be uncomfortable or challenging. But I'm still going to do it. That's when we truly rely on God. It's, it's easy, I think, for people to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I trust God. But I think it's hard for people to say, I trust God so much that I will step out and act. But that's when we see God move. That's when we see him move. And, and, and I think the disciples do this in a way that, that they say, I'm going to take responsibility and be bold, even if it means challenges further, even if it means opposition, we'll see it next week, and even if it means persecution, we'll definitely see that in the weeks to come. But how I would say it is, like, if the disciples were only attempting to do things that they could do in their own strength, then how would God be glorified? How would he be honored? What are ways that God might be asking you to trust in his ultimate sovereignty? In a way that God would be glorified because you couldn't do these things on your own. We might say, oh, you know, it's really hard for me to, to just read the Bible every day and be consistent. I want to do that. And that might be tangible, but sometimes that's a little bit too touchy-feely. It's not so objective. Or we might say, you know, I'm going to talk to one of my coworkers about my faith in Christ. And that's a little more objective. Um, but sometimes you can't always get into situations where you can do that. So Kara mentioned it. She mentioned giving and how there's this challenge in giving, especially in the, midst of, in the midst of financial crunches. And I know of nothing that's more visible, more tangible, and nothing that is more um, right in front of us every day. Not sure the right way to say that, but then our money. So I've talked to the leadership team about this idea of what well, we see in Scripture that there's this tithe. And God says that we should give him what, I mean, he owns everything, but we should give him 
of our first and our best. And this idea of um, a 90-day tithe challenge comes from Malachi 3, where God says, test me in your giving. See if I don't throw open the floodgates of blessings, which, by the way, doesn't mean like an investment strategy. If you give God this way, then he'll just financially bless you this way. But it does mean, like Kara said, that God does answer prayer. God does show up more in our lives. And, and really, this, this, even though it's, a, it's about money because it's tangible and visible and we see it every day, it's really not about money. I think even on the back of your worship folder, you'll see that restoration is like within $500 of our expenses and our income. This is not about getting the church. It's not a fundraising campaign. This is about saying, do we trust God enough to act? And this is a very tangible way that we can do that. Now, for some of you, that's a really big deal. Maybe you've never given 10% and you don't even know how to, you don't even know how to go about doing it. Um, we want to acknowledge that. So there's a spot here that says, hey, I'd be ready if, and there might be an, a concern or a question or a fear or something. Go ahead and write it on there or just write it on the back and you can, you can tear it off and there's a little tower right next to the back table and on the way out today, you can put that in there. We want to take the next couple weeks and address those concerns. But we do want you to think about if you're in a house, bring it back to the people who live in your house, or if you live alone, then talk to a trusted friend and go, how could I make this work in my life? What would have to change, and what do I trust in? Because money, which we'll see as we go through the scripture here, is really about attitude. It's not about the finances. And so um, this idea of the three-month challenge is this. Other churches have done this, and um, I've talked to some people about it, and I'm going for believing what they have said. So if you would do this, and you've never done this, and you sign up, say, hey, I'm going to be ready to do this, and God doesn't show up in your life, if you don't see how he's worked in your life, I did it, and it didn't work. We'll give you the money back from the time you start the challenge. We'll figure it out. I've talked to the finance team and find, okay, from this date to this date, here you go. And again, it's not a financial strategy, but that's one of the ways that our church, as we care about you, can remove a fear from doing this. That's why we're offering the money back guarantee. We're not trying to do a gimmick. We're not trying to... We're not, again, we're not trying to fundraise. In fact, we're going to give 50% of the increase to missions and church planting around the world. It's a test of our faith. Do we trust that God is sovereign? What are you attempting to do that without the power of God, it won't work? For some of us, for a lot of us, that's our finances. Not all of us, but for a lot of us. So if we want to glorify God, we're called out and called together to honor him, then we do this through trusting in his ultimate sovereignty. But another way we do this is by living in unity through generosity. This isn't just financial. We see this in other ways, too. The story continues as they pray. Verse 32. All the believers 
were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those, whom owned, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, you got to picture this scene. You know, like, whenever I pictured this scene, I pictured, like, uh, Jesus' utopia, like this commune where everyone like gathers their food and everything's perfect and they're like, oh, you know, here. And they set it down and, and they have the guys telling it up. And, you know, we know that, that um, you know, Eugene down over on 4C Straight Street, he's got a need. And so let's bring some stuff over there. And then somebody else comes. And then, then Barnabas, you know, Joseph comes and they're like, oh my gosh, look at Barnabas. This, guy's, this guy needs to be renamed. You know what he did? He's just, it's just all blessed perfect. Well, through a little bit further study, and actually through this AD Bible Continues TV show, uh, it's given me a new perspective on things weren't great. We can't judge um, a group of people honoring God on success or, or difficulties any more than we can judge them on kind of this external thought. Things were not amazing all the time. There was a few moments where things were great. There was many moments where things were very difficult. And it's in these challenges that we see moments like this. One heart and mind. Like, I get the sense they don't live compartmentalized lives. That the person they are on Saturday is the person they were on Friday, which is also the person they were on Sunday morning, which is also the person they are on Monday at noon. Not all segregated, one heart and mind. I, I think that this unity through generosity comes through in this sense of like, oh, this person has a need? Well, I have this truck that someone can use. No. No one claimed any of their possessions as their own. Like, Jesus so owns my life that I don't own any of this stuff anymore. So it's God's. You treat it like it's God's. You need to use it. It's okay. They, they had this mentality of commonality. This unity that came through generosity. Because it's hard to see unity when you just say, oh yeah, we're unified. But when you're generous with your words, with your time, with your, with your lives, with your money, with your possessions. It's very, very easy to see. So much so that, that these people say, it, it says there's no needy people. Okay, so picture a needy person in your life. Maybe you don't have to point to them. They might be in the room, right? But we all have needy people in our lives. What's the common thread of needy people? Go ahead. Go ahead. 
Nobody wants to indict their friends here? Uh, I, I think needy people need affirmation. Yes? Yeah? Give me a head nod. Want to interact? Yeah? Or, or they need emotional support, lots of emotional support. Or they always just, they might need money or need stuff or need to keep the conversation about them. Like, are you catching the emotional, the common thread? Like, they need something, right? Needy people need something. Now, it says that there were people that were in need, but there were no needy people. Maybe, maybe, no needy people meant there was no arrogance among them. Maybe needy people meant there was no pride that somebody was better than someone else. Maybe needy people meant that there was no pretending that people were more spiritual than they were or that there was no perfect people around, that they were authentic and they were genuine and they were humble and they were serving. Maybe there was no needy people meant there was no selfishness that was going on and no hoarding that was going on. Those are people I'd like to hang out with. That's a story that I'd like my life to say on my 60th birthday. So much so that maybe I'd get renamed or you'd get renamed. Like Joseph gets renamed. Joseph, who's a Levite, and if you remember your Bible trivia, Levites were brought into the land. They were a tribe from um, Israel that came into the land and did not get to inherit any land. They needed to live off the tithes. I didn't make up that word. That's in there. The tithes of the people, the generosity of others. The Levites had to live off. So Joseph doesn't get to own land in Israel. That's an important deal when it says that Joseph is a Levite. But he's from Cyprus, which is an island that's away, so he can own land there. So I don't know if he was wealthy or not, but I know that it was a sacrifice for him to give. He didn't have extra land. His family didn't have extra land. It's not like he had a lot of extra around. But he saw the need, and he was generous in it. He didn't hold back. He didn't hold back financially, but see, this word, encouragement, son of encouragement. Encouragement is the same word for the Holy Spirit that means to come alongside and stand with in a time of need, to be strength for someone else. Barnabas does this much later in the story when this guy who's Saul, who's ravaging the church and bringing murderous threats, comes to a faith in Christ and everyone's scared of him. No one will let them in their club. Guess who goes to see him? Barnabas goes and stands by his side and says, I will be strong for you. And he is the one who brings Saul into the group. I want to be a Barnabas. I want to be so generous with that, that they, people see the unity. And it's not just financial. It is with my words and my time and my talents. There wasn't pretending going on with Barnabas. And the church takes note. What people, what word, what nickname do you want people to give you? See, in this, this time of 
for, for us as a church, we're coming up on five years as a church. And five years is like, we, we think that we're a real church, but really we've moved from babyhood to toddlerhood. Like, I watched a little boy taking some steps towards the worship center, and I'm like, that's restoration, like, that's us. We're like, a little shaky, you know, if other people come around, we get a little nervous, you know, but we're walking, we're doing it. And, and now it's like, okay, so what is God calling us to? What are you going to be when you grow up? That's what happens from years 5 to 10 as a church, as a church plant, as we establish this idea of bringing hope to the community and to the people around us, especially those who are farthest from it. How do we do that? First, we have to be restored with Jesus, but then we got to be generous in our living and our giving, even just with each other, like Barnabas. And it's happened but sometimes we're afraid to tell the stories because we're such good, humble people. We don't want to take credit for somebody else's story. If you have a story, share it. We need to hear more Barnabases out there. Again, this tithe challenge is about committing to something and looking for God's stories of how he's going to work. Every one of the people on the leadership team has said, yes, I will reevaluate my finances, make sure I'm giving 10% to God's work at restoration or God's work in the world through missions or parachurch organizations. I will commit to this. I will do this. And again, 50% of the increase is going out. It's not about us. But finally... In the midst of great stories like Barnabas, we have to see that sometimes there's going to be this subtle, subtle, subtle trick. And we see it in the next section of the scripture. That If we want to tell the story of Jesus well, if we want to be called out and called together to honor Jesus, then we have to walk with integrity. Barnabas walks with integrity. He's praised for it. They see the generous giving. And the story shifts to two people that couldn't be more opposite than Joseph. Joseph was renamed Barnabas, who means son of encouragement. And these people's names mean God is gracious and beautiful. They have all the pretense of everything being perfect. And they, it says, they saw the praise of Joseph, and they wanted the same praise, just without the pain of wholehearted commitment, that wholehearted generosity to honor God. And they held something back. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have kept some of the money for yourself that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you in the first place? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but you've lied to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who heard what happened. Same thing happens to his wife, and it says, a great fear seized the whole church. That's where we get the word. They had the money. It was theirs to give. They didn't have to give any of it. This is voluntarily. I don't want to force you into doing this in any way, shape, or form. Again, it's a challenge to step out. They didn't have to give, but they wanted the praise of people. They just didn't want to do it with a full commitment. 
And that's where Satan's slyest trick is. We're just going to hold a little bit back. We're going to hold a little bit back in this way. We're going to be a little bit dishonest, but we don't realize that it's going to destroy unity because dishonesty just starts to destroy unity. It just crumbles it because we can't be authentic if we're holding something back. And Peter knows. Peter knows why he's able to say this. Ananias, how has Satan so filled your heart that you've done this? You know why? Because remember when Peter, Jesus told Peter that he was, that when Peter said Jesus was the Christ, and Jesus said, God has revealed this to you, but then right after that, he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter knows what it's like to be filled with Satan, to be filled with this thought of holding something back or a Messiah that wouldn't have to suffer. He knows. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he sees Ananias, and he says, how has Satan so filled your heart? Now, that tells me two things. One, that God can still use someone who has their heart filled with Satan for a moment, who has their heart filled with this evil thought or this selfish thought or this dark thought. So if you're like, you don't know what I've done, Rob, I can't possibly be someone who could be this generous, who could walk in this unity or trust God in his sovereignty or live in, in, in this integrity. I, I couldn't be one of those people. That's not true. That's not true because we see it over and over and over. God gives people second chances. Oh, and by the way, third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. So then why didn't Ananias get those chances? Because God knew at the very start of this little movement that it could not be filled with dishonesty, that it could not be filled with this pretension or this pretending. And his severe judgment comes out at the very start over and over and over in Scripture. Severe judgment in the Garden of Eden. Severe judgment for disobedience for Moses. Severe judgment when the people go into the land in Joshua with the sin of Achan. And over and over and over, just severe judgment at the beginning to make sure that this, the people know just how important this unity, this authenticity and this idea that we have to give our whole hearts to Jesus is. As we close, it's, again, it's not even about the money. It's about walking with integrity. That's how a church glorifies God. That's how people glorify God. And we can't possibly do it on our own. But this is this moment to say, Sin is serious. It's so serious that God became Christ to die for us, to pay for our sin, because it's so serious. But because he rose from the dead and proved his victory over sin and death and Satan, we can be restored with God, and we can trust in his sovereignty. We can walk in his integrity. And we can live in this unity through generosity by his faithfulness, not ours. We should be beating down the doors and telling people what an amazing thing that is. Not because we're perfect. We don't have to pretend. But because Christ did it all. Sin is not fun, no matter how people want to look at it. It is just one more way to put up a wall between us and God to the point where someone can fall over and die. But when those walls come down, 
it says that great fear seizes the church and no one dared start. Well, guess what? More and more people kept coming. Why? Because there was no needy people among them. Why? Because they were seeing power. They, it says, if, the story, if we keep re- reading in the story, it says that people would even walk into Peter's shadow and they would be healed. Why? Because Peter had no pretense. He wasn't living in the shadows like Ananias. He was so living in the light of God that God's healing power came through him. That's not about him. That's about a life surrendered to God. How do you want your story to go? And what kind of church do we want to be? Because I want to be a church that honors God. And I want to be a guy at the end of my life or on my 60th birthday, which is a long way away, by the way. <sighs> Just saying. That is a man of encouragement. That is someone who stood with me and I saw Jesus. Now that's me, I know me. What is God saying to you? You pray with me as the band comes up. God, as we continue to talk about this, this tangible challenge of a tithe challenge, God, I pray that we wouldn't lose, wouldn't focus on the money, but we would focus, God, on who you call us to be and how you call us to live even in the midst of challenges. And I know there's people who are in big, big challenges, God. People who can't just say, I trust in your ultimate sovereignty because it sounds a little too trite right now. But who want to. God, I pray that you would speak powerfully, that you'd move. God, that we would pray with a boldness to step in and take responsibility because of your sovereignty in a way that would bring honor and glory to you, God, that you would fill us. You would fill us with hope. You would fill us with life. You would fill us with unity and generosity that spills out so that there's no needy people among us, but so that people who are in need have their emotional and physical and, and relational and spiritual needs met through your Holy Spirit. For your power and your glory, Lord, speak to us, God, on where we pretend, on what we hide in the shadows, and on what we're holding back, so that we might be people who live in the light and are huge encouragement to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.